you would this morning, let's go back to the book of Jude. Go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and hang a left. We spent almost two years going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings. We finished out a couple of weeks ago and preached our very first message in the book of Jude last week. And just to kind of give you a recap, uh, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Of course, we know that Jesus was the God-man. He was born of the Virgin Mary, but uh, after the birth of Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary had children of their own. That's very clear from Scripture. The Catholics get that wrong, but they did have children. And, but uh, Jude didn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus. He said the servant of Jesus. And we talked about how awkward and strange that would be if somebody said that their brother was their Lord and Savior. You know, the, uh, Christ is a title. It's not a last name. It means the anointed one. And I don't think anybody in here would say that you serve and worship one of your siblings, the anointed one. At least I hope not. And uh, we saw that the, the point of Jude writing, he initially was going to write of the great common salvation that he shared with these uh, with these Christians that obviously seem to have somewhat of a Jewish background by the, the things he includes in his letter. Uh, but he changed his mind because he figured out and found out that false teachers had uh, made their way into the church unnoticed. And Jude is writing to the Christians in these churches. He's not writing to these pastors, although he could have. But he writes this polemic response to these uh, Christians and he's rallying the troops and he is encouraging them to contend for the faith, to fight for the truths of the gospel and the word of God. And, you know, we don't like to think about uh, contending and fighting or striving for much of anything these days, but here we're commanded to do so. Truth is always the battle in every generation. And the reason that we're saved today, the reason that we have the gospel is because there's always been somebody throughout the generations that did fight for the truth, and I'm thankful for that. And so it doesn't need to stop with us. So we, we talked last week specifically, uh, mainly in the first two verses, uh, about how Jude is rallying the troops, and he is making an appeal to born-again Christians who have been saved and called and sanctified uh, that know the mercy of God. They know His peace. They know His love. And so He's appealing to save born-again Christians to stand for the truth because nobody else is going to do it. And so with that thought in mind, uh, let's... Uh, well, I, one more thought before I do read our text. One thing I, I want to make sure we remember. We talked about the fact that Jude was writing, and I believe specifically in that time uh, they were facing opposition from the Gnostics. They, they, the Gnostics believed in supernatural uh, secret revelation from God which would abandon any kind of uh, adherence to the Word of God as our absolute standard for authority. And uh, I've always said, and I'll say it many times throughout this study, uh, God told me is no substitute for God said. And every cult that's ever been imagined started... <laughs> with God told me. We're going to see it not in our text today, but we're going to see it next week how this is the exact charge that Jude levels against these false teachers. And uh, so we need to be aware of this. 
With that in mind, let's read our text and we'll pull some things out from verses 4 through 7. I'll, I'll, I'll begin reading from verse 1 just to get the context. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, we just thank you for this day. God, I just pray for all those that are sick and couldn't be here today. Would you be with them and bless them in a mighty way? Uh, just empty me of sin and self and fill me your Holy Spirit. Use my feeble efforts, uh, God, that you would be magnified, that, that your word would be made clear. And I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts today, Lord, that, that we would be humbled in your presence. And we'll just thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. I want to look at a really really important subject, and I would say uh, one of the most relevant things for the day in which we live. Uh, the title of the message today is Getting Grace Wrong. Getting Grace Wrong. And, you know, when you think about the, the grace of God, I mean, you're talking about a central doctrine in Scripture. And I, I feel like there's so many people today to get it wrong, and they get it wrong on the left side, they get it wrong on the right side. There's different ways uh, that you can get grace wrong. And in this text, just to give a, a quick overlook, quick outline before we go through it line by line, but uh, Jude lays the first charge against these false teachers in verse 4. And the charge is that they got grace wrong. They turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, these ungodly men did this, and in doing so, they denied the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty serious charge. And Jude then goes on in this, this letter that he is trying to persuade and trying to get to the conscience and the mind of the readers. He, he bases this charge of getting grace wrong. And then he goes on in the verses afterwards... And he gives three examples of God judging those who also got grace wrong. He gives the example of apostate Jews who had uh, been released from Egyptian bondage and yet uh, turned against God in the wilderness. He gives the example of apostate angels who left their first estate, which would be heaven. They rebelled against God. And then he gives the example of apostate Gentiles in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so not only is he basing this charge... But then he's giving an example of God's judgment against those who did. And his central point, Jude's central point in our text this morning is this. Knowing what God has done to people in the past who taught this, do we really think it's a good idea to let people come to the church and teach these things? The answer would be no. 
I wouldn't want to bring that into the church. And so these, these wicked, ungodly teachers are, are teaching what I would call cheap grace. We see cheap grace everywhere in our society today. In fact, I would say that's the hallmark of the American church in our day is cheap grace. Uh, but there's things we need to understand about this. I've got two points this morning. And as you learned last week, I only preached one point and I preached like 50 minutes. So you've learned not to get excited about one or two instead of three. So, you know, uh, the, the proverb says that hope deferred maketh the heart sick. So you don't get your hopes up, you know. But uh, what, are the, what are the implications of getting grace wrong? Well, first of all, I want you to know that uh, if you get grace wrong, you're going to misunderstand God. Uh, look at verse 4 again. This is our central verse. It says, For there are certain men uh, crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God, our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a quick side note. I don't have to get deep into this, but you know, some have been troubled uh, by that phrase that they had been uh, condemned of old to this, uh, to this fate, I guess we could say. I want you to understand that God did not make these men do this. Uh, but I can promise you He's going to make them pay for it. And before He had ordained that such ungodly teachers would face judgment. It's not something that God came up with on the fly and said, Ooh, I didn't know they were going to do that. I ought to do something about that. No, this judgment was ordained of old, and I would not, I would not want to stand before a holy God having corrupted the gospel and corrupted grace. And what a serious charge, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now let me say this, we're talking about misunderstanding God. To misunderstand the grace of God is to misunderstand the God of grace. And if you have a misunderstanding of grace, you're going to misunderstand God. And, and whatever you believe about grace, you tell me what you believe about grace, and I can tell you what you believe about God. Because to misunderstand the grace of God is to misunderstand the very character of God. As some might ask the question, well... What's the big deal? Nobody can perfectly understand God, you know, to each their own. Well, certainly there are some things that we cannot understand about God. I cannot fit a fi an infinite God within my four-pound finite brain. I can't do it. And the moment that God fits in the logic of my brain, He'll cease to be God. That's where the cults get it wrong. Oh, God doesn't fit within your logic? I'm sorry. He's just too big for that. But there are some things that we have to get right. Yes, there are some secondary issues that all Christians can disagree on. There's some gray area and we can all get over it and we can be neighbors in heaven and we can love each other down here and that's fine. But there's some things that you, you can't get wrong or you can't, even, you can't even be a Christian. You can't even be saved. This is certainly one of them. Um, we cannot uh, misunderstand grace to where we misunderstand God and I'll put it to you like this for people who don't think it's a big deal, misjudging God. Uh, years ago when I was in high school, I used to help my dad. I, I worked for him during the summer. He was uh, a sales manager at a used car lot. And every summer they would have these different sales all over the state. They would, they would take cars from their lot 
And they would strategically set them up at certain hot spots in different towns. And me and another guy would drive all these cars to the new lots. And there was one sale they had in Demopolis, Alabama. Or for people that's not familiar with the state, it's Demopolis. But anyway, we set up in this grocery store parking lot. And I was helping. It was on Saturday. And this couple pulls up in a pickup truck. And in the back of that truck is the biggest dog I have ever seen in my life. He was a Rottweiler. And he was a... It was like a mythical creature. I mean, he is the biggest dog I've ever seen. And he just looked cute. He looked friendly. You know, he's got his tongue hanging out. He's just enjoying riding around in the back of a truck. And there was just something in me. I had to go pet this animal. I had to, I had to be a part of what's going on here. And I mean, it was just so fluffy. You know, I, had to, I just had to do something about it. And uh, I, I even asked the owner, I said, is he friendly? Is he, no, he's just a puppy. You know, you can go ahead. And so I started petting him and for the first two seconds, he was doing okay, and all of a sudden, I saw his eyes change. I saw his whole countenance change, and he started growling, and I went to jerk my arm back, and he got me. And uh, I'm telling you, he tore a hole in my hand. I finally, I had to hit him in his eye to get him to get off of me. And uh, I misjudged that animal. <laughs> now, I know that's somewhat of a, a humorous example, but I promise you, it wasn't funny at the time. But our God is so infinitely beyond anything. He's so much more powerful. He's so much more holy. He's so much more just. And I was able to walk away with a hole in my hand for misjudging a dog. But you misjudge God and you could end up in hell for all eternity. And so we can't get this wrong. We can't get grace wrong. Um... Now, these false teachers, they were ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And by default, they denied the Lord Jesus Christ. What a serious charge. Now, the word lasciviousness, it means unbridled lust. And the word can also be translated licentiousness. And if you think about the word licentious, it's got the word license in it. And it carries with it the idea that the grace of God is a license to sin. Jesus paid for our sin. Let's get our money's worth. God is just love, love, love. He's going to love us no matter what we do. There's no punishment. There's no justice. Uh, The grace of God means that we can do whatever we want to do and God is going to turn a blind eye. That is exactly what turning the grace of God into lasciviousness means. And if that's not the message that's being, being preached in most of our pulpits across America, there's not a cow in Texas. It's everywhere. And it's a very serious thing. But before we really dive into the idea of what it means to get grace wrong, I want you to know about some things concerning getting grace right. I don't want you to just be able to point the finger and Say, well, he's getting grace wrong. I want you to walk out of here knowing how to get grace right. So we're going to look at this. Now, this is so important. If you you don't listen to anything else that's said this morning, this is what you have to get. There are two words, two categories that we must remember when it comes to the grace of God. If If we're going to have a biblical view of grace, there's two things we have to get. And these two things are acceptability and accountability acceptability of grace, and the accountability of grace. Now, if you have both of these together, you'll have a biblical and balanced view of grace. But if you only have one or the other, you're going to get on a ditch, in a ditch on either side. That's what I want to talk about this morning 
those two ditches of getting grace wrong. Now, ditch number one uh, recognizes accountability without acceptability. And when you have grace that has accountability without acceptability, it leads to a dead works religion, a works salvation, where a person's whole life is dedicated to trying to earn the favor of God. This is where the cults come from. It's where a works-based salvation comes from, which is the overwhelming majority of religion. Is what can I do to appease God? What can I do to earn the favor of God? Well, earned grace is an oxymoron. It's a misnomer. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms because the word grace means unmerited, undeserved favor with God. And the moment that you deserve grace, it ceases to be grace. If it's of works, it cannot be of grace. And yet, the religions of the world believe that there are things that we can do to earn God's favor. That a person must try their hardest to be accepted by God. We see a perfect example of this with our very own Joseph Smith. Jay Smitty said in 2 Nephi, this is in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25 and verse 23, listen to what he says here. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. Did you hear that? In other words, if you just do your best, you just try your hardest every day and pull yourself by your own bootstraps and help little old ladies across the street and give money to a church and give to charity and all these good things that God, the holy God of heaven, is going to look down from the balcony of His throne room and say, wow, they're so good, I think I'll reward them by giving them some of my grace. That is the exact opposite of what grace is. But if you hear in His own words exactly what He said, that grace is the reward that God gives you after all that you can do. That's not what grace is. Now, now, contrast what Joseph Smith said in the Book of Mormon with what the Apostle Paul said by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a little bit different, isn't it? And to say that somehow that Mormonism is another testament of Jesus Christ, that's like fitting a square peg in a round hole. What you just heard was two different teachings from two, from two different people that serve two different gods. They're not the same. Another testament of Jesus Christ, my hind leg. It's a works religion that totally confuses what grace is. You see, Joseph Smith and Mormonism, along with Jehovah's Witness and um, in any cult you can think of just about, they have a form of grace that has accountability without acceptability, and it tries to earn the favor of God. I remember, and I know, uh, y'all just y'all know me by now, I just know to pray for me. But I, I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door one time, and... Uh, you know, they believe in the 144,000 that are going to get to reign with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. But you know, uh, Jehovah's Witness worldwide, I mean, I want to say, I may be a little off on this, but I think it's like close to 40 million members worldwide. Worldwide. 
Now you do a percentage uh, of what 144,000 is with 40 million, and it's it's not much. I mean, it's like less than one tenth of one percent, I think. And uh, so I, I messed him up. I said, "Well, how can you be so sure that you're going to be one of the 144?" I mean, I'm in the presence of greatness right now, you know. And they did. They never thought about. It. I gave them the math, and they thought about it like, "Wait a second here," <laughs> you know. I may not be doing enough. And uh, I go ahead and tell them they're not doing enough. None of them are. None of us can. And so, but, but that's what they do. They give a grace that has accountability without acceptability. And the accountability by itself, it leads to bondage. It leads to legalism. It leads to a false sense of a works-based salvation. And we could never earn the favor of God. Listen, people don't understand. I tell them a lot of times when I'm witnessing out and... If I get the chance, I'll ask them and I'll say, um, do you know what it takes to get to heaven? And they'll, sometimes I'll say, well, I'm not totally sure. I, I think so. And, and I'll say, well, do, you, do you think you're a good person? And most of the time they'll say yes. And I say, we know the Bible actually has a test to know that. The Ten Commandments is God's minimum standard of human behavior. And you walk them down the line, we've all lied. We're all liars. Um, probably most of us have stolen something. And even if you deny it, you're probably a liar, so we can't believe you anyway. Jesus said if you've looked at a woman and lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Most all of us at some point in time have used the Lord's name in vain that makes us blasphemers. I mean, just by those few, we would be guilty before God. Listen, you don't just have to be good to get into heaven. You have to be perfect in order to get into heaven. Because God cannot allow one sin into heaven. One sin, one act of disobedience from Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil cast him and Eve and the entire human race away from God's presence. God cannot allow one sin, not one evil thought, not one evil word, not one evil deed. He can't allow one sin into heaven. And if He did, heaven would be full of cemeteries just like it is here on earth. Heaven would have hospitals. Heaven would have abortion clinics. Heaven would have prisons. I'm glad that there's no sin in heaven, aren't you? And so it's not about being good, it's about being perfect. You can't do it. What have you ever done in your life to make the God of heaven go, wow, I sure wish I could do that. We can't do it. People that believe in a grace of accountability with no acceptability, they have way too high a view of themselves and way too low a view of God. They bring God's standard down here and pretend their standards up here. And so what they've done is they have lessened God and they've elevated themselves. And so that's a, that's a faulty view of grace. That's not the view of grace here in the book of Jude, but I wanted to throw that in there so you could get an understanding of what we're dealing with. Uh, that's one ditch, uh, accountability without acceptability. Uh, the second ditch, and this is exactly what Jude is dealing with here in this text, is a grace... Uh, of acceptability with no accountability. A grace of acceptability without accountability. And this leads to a loose, sinful lifestyle because it denies the holy and just character of God. A faulty view of grace like this, acceptability without accountability, it totally denies who God is. Totally denies who God is. Whereas the first ditch says... I'm only accountable to God and I'll never, I'll never be accepted. Ditch number two says, 
I am only accepted by God and never accountable. Uh, This is what the false teachers in the book of Jude were teaching. They were ungodly men who deny the Lord, and we see this everywhere in our day of this cheap grace. And I would say, now, now there's other examples out there, but I would say the most glaring example of this kind of grace uh, is in the professing church that has embraced the LGBT lifestyle. Uh, God loves everyone just the way that you are. You don't have to do anything, no repentance. You know, God's not, not a harsh God. He's, he's not a God of judgment. Uh, he, he gives grace because that's just who He is. He's just that loving. And there's, there's no justice in it at all. Um, now, if someone doesn't repent of their wickedness and cast themselves upon Jesus Christ, God will judge them just the way that they are. See, cheap grace says God will love me just the way that I am. The Bible says God's going to judge you just the way that you are. Some people have said in the past, well, <laughs> only God can judge me. Well, that should scare you. Yes, He can and He will. It's a, it's a cheap grace and... <clears throat> Man, I, I hit a home run this week with a book that I'm reading on a different topic that spoke to exactly where we are in this text. And, and uh, maybe the thought is simple to you, but it seemed pretty profound to me. I'm, I'm reading a book by Erwin Lutzer called God's Devil. And he's talking about Satan and how he fell. And I mean, it's just a really in-depth look at the person of Lucifer. And he was trying, he was, the chapter I was reading this week He was really battling with the question of why did Lucifer rebel against God when he was the most powerful of all created beings. He had everything. I mean, he he was perfect in wisdom and beauty and and wealth and, I mean, anything that you could possibly think of, he had it. He was was God's right-hand man, I mean, really as far as created beings go. And Lutzer gave, and of course we can't know everything for sure, but I thought Lutzer had a great thought. He said prior to the rebellion of Lucifer, there was absolutely no sin at all. We we know that. But what this means is there had never been an example of the justice and judgment of God on anything or anyone. Only the love of God. Lucifer and the host of heaven, so far as we know, only saw the goodness of God, only saw the love of God, never saw the justice or wrath of God. And even if God had talked to them about His wrath and justice, they would have had no idea really what He was talking about. Because there was no evil. And so it's not too far-fetched to think, as Lutzer said, that Satan might have rebelled at least in part because he thought he could get away with it. He thought that God was just going to lay down and let him take over this universe and, and God was just going to go in his corner and sit like a little trained puppy and let Lucifer do what he wanted to do. You know what he did? Lucifer misjudged God, didn't he? And when he rebelled against God and sin entered into this universe, he saw a whole different side to the God of heaven. Son, he bit off way, way more than he could chew. And if that is true, and I think it's a good theory... He thought that God was a God of only acceptability and no accountability. So let me say this, and this would ruffle the feathers in a lot of places. We are never more like Satan than we think that he's just a God of love and not of justice. Think about that a minute. Never more like Satan than when we think God is just a God of love and not 
uh, God of justice. Lucifer severely misjudged the character and justice of God. Um, now, when it comes to our view of grace, accountability without acceptability, as we saw, leads to a dead religion of works. But acceptability without accountability, uh, it leads to this kind of lifestyle that, that we're talking about, that, that totally uh, ignores the, the justice of God. Uh, but the biblical teaching, as we're going to see in a minute, it recognizes both acceptability and accountability. And what I found, and we're actually going to, you know, we've been doing a mini-series on Sunday nights about how to share your faith. We're going to finish up with that tonight. And I've actually picked out a handful of clips from my time on the streets, whether it be, you know, gay pride or different places. And I'm, I'm going to show you some of the counter-arguments that are used. And one of the things that I heard over and over and over and over and over again was that my God is a God of love. What do you have against love? Why are you so full of hate? My God is a God of love. You know what I would always say? And I never got an answer for this. And every time I said this, they turned white as a sheet and they walked away. I said, oh no, 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 no. You've got it backwards. I think you're, I'm so, I think you're confused. My God is actually the God of love. And they look, they, their eyes get wide and they say, well, how is that possible? My God is... I said, oh, no, no, no. Your God is the hateful God. And they said, well, how? And I said, because your God turns His back and lets rapists into heaven. Your God lets pedophiles into heaven and murders into heaven because He turns a blind eye to them. And they turn white and they walk away because they've got no answer for that. Because you cannot have love without justice. It does not exist. And so we see this false view of grace that has acceptability without accountability. But before we go to our last and final point here, I want you to really get this. The biblical view of grace recognizes both the acceptability of God and the accountability to God. Uh, Because of God's grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ, I am accepted by God. And because of that fatherly acceptance, I'm also accountable to Him. As a born-again Christian, I will not answer to God as a criminal that faces a judge, but as a child facing a loving father. The difference is that judges punish while fathers discipline. Uh, Because of God's grace, we are both accepted and accountable to God. These false teachers in Jude denied the latter and got grace wrong, and it led to horrible consequences. And before we close out last point, I I want you to get this. Now, I'm saved by the grace of God. Grace is not just an opportunity. It's a saving force. Grace is not just an opportunity to prove myself to God. I already know I fail. Grace saves us. Uh, The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. If you would just repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ and His finished work, that is the basis of salvation. When I'm trying to find my acceptance before God, I don't say, God, look at me. I say, no, no, look at Jesus. When I get to heaven, if somebody asks, "Why uh, why should we allow you in? Because of what Jesus did on my behalf. That's it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. <laughs> That's it. I've never Listen, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to make me right with God. 
It's not about what we do or what we've done. It's about who He is and what He's done. And you see, here's here's what the chief grace crowd doesn't get. This is what they totally confuse. You know, when God forgives us, it's not because He's so loving that He just sweeps sin under the rug and lets everybody in, doesn't matter. No. No, He can forgive me because He gave His justice to Jesus Christ on my behalf. You see, God can't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't can't just wink at it. It has to be punished. But we can be made right with God on on the fact that Jesus Christ took the punishment on our behalf. God poured out His justice and His wrath upon Jesus Christ, God the Son, on my behalf. He wore my sins, He wore our sins in His body on the tree And God poured out His wrath upon Him on the basis that He was wearing our sin. And on that basis of our sin imputed to Him, if we would repent and believe, He he imputes His righteousness to us and He justifies us and declares us to be righteous before God. That's exactly what salvation is. And if you're not resting in that, you need to check up. You may not be saved or... You may be saved and you've just not completely rested upon what He's done for you. I mean, there's a lot of things in life I don't know, but I know this. I know I'm saved. I'm fireproof today. If I died today, I'd go to heaven on the basis of what Jesus Christ did, of His shed blood for our sin. That's it. And see, that's what the chief grace grace crowd doesn't realize. And when I preach to a crowd like that, I always start with John 3, 16 through 19. Because we, we love, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we love that, don't we? But we don't often go down just a few verses where it says, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And the world loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and they killed the Son of God. There's a lot of people today who wish he was still dead. And so the cheap grace crowd, the reason I start with that is because I ask them a question, why did Jesus Christ have to die such a horrible death? Well, it's because of the wrath of God against sin. That's why. And if he spared not his only begotten son, you rest assured he's not going to spare any of us. (laughs) Just cause. And so we see this cheap grace. We see that A misunderstanding of grace leads to a misunderstanding of God. But then secondly, and I'm done, and I won't be nearly as long on this one, but not only does Jude talk about false grace and the teaching of false grace, but he gives three examples of God's judgment against this teaching. Let's look at those really quickly. The first one is found in uh, verse 5. He says, I will therefore put in your remembrance. He's obviously speaking to a Jewish audience here. Because he's referring to things the Jews would have known very well. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. We're having some happy language here about how God feels about cheap grace. And the the illustration he gives is when God freed the Jews, the Israelites there from slavery in Egypt, through all of the plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and what a miraculous deliverance that was, they get out in the wilderness and Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to get the law of God, 
the tablets, the, the commandments from God. And while he's gone, the people decide to uh, melt down their jewelry, their gold, throw it in a fire, and they make this God that looks like a golden calf, this statue that looks like a golden calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf. And what's amazing to me about this, they didn't call this calf, this God, this little G God by another name. They called Him the God of Israel that delivered them out of bondage. They took the name of the true God and applied it to a false God. We see that in churches all over this country and this world. Yeah, they might meet, they, they might sing songs, they might be a Christian church, but they're promoting and worshiping a false Christ. And when Moses came down from the mountain, what he sees is a bunch of naked people dancing around a fire to this God. They were having a big orgy worshiping the God that delivered them out of Egypt. You know what they might have thought? Well, God has just loved us so much. He delivered us out of bondage. He, I mean, he, he parted the Red Sea. He worked all His miracles. He destroyed uh, Pharaoh and his armies. He just loves us so much. I bet we can do whatever we want to and get away with it. If they didn't feel like they could get away with it, they wouldn't have done it. And Moses comes down and he's so mad, he threw the tablets and broke them. And then, you know, he is just laying in to Aaron. And Aaron, you know, if it wasn't so serious, it would be hilarious. Go back and read Exodus 32 and verse 24 sometime. When Aaron is given his excuse of what happened, he's like, well, you know, all the people just started throwing their gold in the fire and out came this golden calf. It just popped out of there. That's exactly what he told Moses. And so they didn't get away with it. You know what God did? That day he slayed 3,000 people. And over the next 40 years, he would end up uh, killing, if you want to call it that, everybody that was 20 years of age or, or uh, older. Only the younger generation got to go into the promised land. Uh, I would say the judgment of God is pretty serious against this kind of teaching. Uh, the next illustration that Jude gives is in verse 6. He says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what this is talking about. Uh, I don't want to theorize. Uh, I, would, I would say that it would be something that uh, the Jews would have understood, and we're going to see uh, next week that Jude does something that I don't think any other New Testament writer does, and that's refer to traditional Jewish works that were not biblical. He's using it as something historical that they would have understood. I can't help but think he's doing the same thing here, but it seems like these angels... Not only had they rebelled against God, but they did something so bad that God has actually reserved them in chains of darkness until the day of judgment. Meanwhile, Satan and his forces of evil are roaming the earth freely. And so I think the central point to get here without getting off on a rabbit trail is the, the idea is that if God wouldn't even spare the angels that rebelled, He's not going to spare us. Um... The, the third illustration he gives is apostate Gentiles in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. We see his, his rage. Uh, we, we see that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which Sodom and Gomorrah, they were very prominent wealthy cities, uh, there was safety and great military strength within the walls of these cities. 
And if someone had arrived in Sodom, they had just arrived, uh, certainly by earthly standards, but God says, not by my standards. They were involved in all kind of sin, including sexual sin, and most specifically, the sin of homosexuality. This is where we get the, the term sodomy from. And God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. And, you know, there's a lot of people that would try to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. You can't do that. That's why Jude is freely referring back to these things. Um, and the question is, that I mentioned before, and I'll finish with this, Jude is, is reminding them of God's judgment against the Gentiles, the Jews, and the angels, the heavenly host. And he's saying, do you really think it's a good idea to let these people come to the church and teach this stuff? Getting grace wrong is a very, very serious offense. It's a very dangerous thing. And just a few questions in conclusion. First of all, are you born again? Do you know the Lord? Have you been saved by the grace of God? Do you know for sure that you're saved, that you have a home in heaven uh, if you died? And uh, second question, if you are saved, are you resting in that grace? Do you really have the joy of the Lord in knowing that He saved you? And from that freedom of knowing that you're a child of God, you can serve Him without fear of eternal judgment. I would say to you, if that's you today, stop trying and start trusting. Have you bought into a grace that denies the holiness and justice of God? You need to repent. You need to repent and put your trust in Christ and His finished work, and He'll save you from your sin. I'll close with this quote when we talk about uh, how God is. I love this quote. It's, it's from C.S. Lewis, and it's actually from his novel, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, of course, in that book, different characters represent different biblical characters, uh, the lion being Christ, the, the witch being Satan. Um, and so it's, it's very symbolic. And there's a line toward the end of the movie that I left probably my favorite line in there, uh, both in the book and in the movie they included this. But um, <clears throat> it said, Aslan, talking about the lion, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good, but he's not safe. You won't find the safety of God as one of his attributes anywhere in there. You need to understand and recognize that. But I'm thankful there is safety in Jesus Christ and his finished work, shielding us from the wrath of God. Do you know Him, or have you bought into a false grace? Have you misjudged God by misjudging His grace? Would you stand this morning as she comes? Heavenly Father, we love you.